This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. This week, I'm joined by several guests, Scott Brown, Hunter Newby, and Anthony Romanello. Each of these men have had a role to play in the long history of building the internet, the tools that we use, and the future economic development of data centers and subseat cable landing stations. These are quick but important conversations. So join us for the discussion on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Scott, thanks for coming on the show today. Oh, thank you very much. Hey, I, so um, we're here at the IEIC Summit, and um, you were gracious enough to come and join us uh, for this quick conversation. Can you give us a quick background on what is the Pixel Factory? Sure. We're a small facility, sub 10,000 square feet. Um, what we do is provide head-in to a lot of the electric co-ops that are doing fiber to the home, mm-hmm. and we've got a significant number of uh, what I'll call multi-dwelling ISPs that do apartment complexes, uh, condos, and, and that kind of stuff. So we're a small data center, but um, you know we're very well connected. Why Pixel Factory for the name? <laughs> I, I mean, we only have a few minutes now, but I'm intrigued. Yeah. Most people call themselves some other very technical name, and I, I dig that name. So this is actually my second career, and I'm actually having just as much fun as the first <laughs> career. My, my first career was I did advertising, magazine, photography, 30-plus okay. years on right. contract with Sports Illustrated, uh, one of the largest golf tournaments in the world. I'm director of photography. So it, uh, we were storing images, and back when 20-plus years ago, we switched from film to digital. Right. We had some software written that stored images that didn't exist. There wasn't your Flickr, Shutterfly, and all that right. stuff didn't exist. And so we actually started licensing that software to our corporate clients, which in turned in to the top 20 NASCAR teams. We manage their entire PR and advertising libraries. Wow. We don't shoot the content, but we just house it. Right. So that led to you know servers in, in, in a data center. And we left a particular data center in Richmond and built our own facility. Right. Um, and uh, it's actually great, great story. Um, we, uh, when we started building the facility, we were six months into it. And How long ago was that? Probably 12 or, I can't remember the exact, 12 or 13 years ago. Okay. QTS announced the Richmond build. Right. And I went, oh, great. Uh, dropped every dime I've got, and I'm building a sub-10,000 square foot facility, and they're launching a million square feet in Richmond. Right. I couldn't have been further from the accuracy of the whole event. Uh, QTS and our facility are fantastic. Uh, they're the scale that they're at. We don't right. compete for the same clientele. Uh, we trade leads all the time. Right. Uh, and so we've, cause we routinely will get, you know, same requests for large scale deployments, which don't fit our facility. Right. Uh, and they get requests for single rack and smaller deployments that right. don't fit their scale. So right. it's actually a great, great, it's I've a very symbiotic them. relationship. It works great. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and in fact, we launched, uh, myself and a couple other companies in town launched the Richmond, Virginia, Virginia internet exchange mm-hmm. a couple years back, right. uh, nonprofit IX. And then we were taking that and we actually installed it in QTS. Mm-hmm. They partnered on it and we installed it in edge connects and we installed it in our facility, uh, started to, connecting uh, different content networks in, different cache clusters came into the facility. 
Um, I was still running the data center myself, mm -hmm. and it just started to present challenges, and DKIX reached out, mm -hmm. uh, one of the world's largest IX platforms. Mm -hmm. uh, we worked out a relationship, and DKIX has now taken over the exchange mm -hmm. and our facility and QTS and Edge Connects and has taken the reins and run with it and, uh, and broadened the connectivity. If somebody doesn't know what IX is, because we love to speak in acronyms, <laughs> that's what yes. we do. Uh, can you explain real quick what that uh, is? Internet exchange, common, Internet. common meet me location to trade traffic at the most cost effective price point. Right. Uh, each person covers their cost of getting there or connecting to, and it's a uh, common platform that allows all the content providers to show up in one place. Uh, one of the things we struggled with the Richmond, Virginia Internet Exchange is a lot of the large content providers are looking for a single contract. Mm to execute worldwide. Um, we were a single entity and it's a one-off. Right. So DKX brought validity to what we were trying to do in Richmond. Right. And a lot of those content providers can stroke, they've stroked single contracts with, with DKX for worldwide deployment and DKX basically just validates a market right. for those uh, large content providers. Right. Like an Apple that says, okay, DKX, you're deploying XXNX and Richmond is one of those locations. We will follow behind you. Right. And it's, so it's been a great uh, relationship between the DKX solution, the QTS and everything else that gives the, the legs in this, this, this uh, community. And I think it's an image of the future. I mean, it, you know, there, there are the mega data centers like QTS or our frenemies. We go into marketplaces, some of them not, you know, 10 or 12 years ago when we were coming to do Richmond, the world thought we were crazy. They still think we're crazy. Like what you're going to do what, where, but it was such an interesting opportunity for us. We just couldn't, uh, we couldn't pass it up. Having said that though, everywhere we go and not just us, but organizations similar to us, they bring in these, there are smaller um, or unique niche players that live very, uh, um, very well in the same neighborhood we do. We do not uh, overlap hardly at all. It's uh, it's pretty cool. One of the things that you said earlier that really caught my imagination, though, when you're talking about the content for NASCAR, and one of the things that I say all the time is that the ideas of the whole world live in a data center, whether it's music or it's an image or it's a fill in the blank. It's, you know, the formula for Coca-Cola doesn't live in their safe. It lives in a data center somewhere, their data center, somebody's Correct. data center. And so here you are illustrating that exact idea. And one of the things you're here today to talk about is how subsea cable landing stations or whatever can impact the digital economy. Can you tease that out a little bit? What do you mean by that? Sure. It's, it's actually... You know, backing up a couple of years ago, uh, when we first were starting to get the data center connected with carriers and transit, you know, transit mm -hmm. providers, didn't cross my mind. I knew about the subsea cables coming to Virginia Beach, knew it was going to have a major impact, right? but didn't realize the impact it was going to have on our facility and our region. Um, and the way it translates, I, I call it the, where the rubber hits the road or where the, the last mile fiber hits the home. Mm -hmm. So these electric co-ops are in these rural communities that are basically south of Richmond, across the entire state. Mm -hmm. uh, those rural communities, um, I, I just give you this perfect example. Mm. Uh, Firefly, one of our uh, customers, we, they head in all of their equipment for IP in our facility. Okay. Fireflies landing fiber to the home in a rural community. Uh, I think they hit their 10,000th customer about a year and a half ago or two years ago. I went to that big event and uh, this teacher walked up on stage and she was talking about how it impacted her family life. Hmm. 
she would have to stay after school to do her grades and do her student reviews uh, roughly an hour, hour and a half each day. Mm. Um, and because her cell service, her hotspot was not capable at her residence, right. connecting to the school server or infrastructure. Uh, Firefly landed fiber to her home. Uh, that traffic was now going from the fiber to the school system, and she had a reliable source. She ended up picking up between four and five hours a week that she spends with her family now instead of being at school doing the grades because her, her internet wasn't capable at her home. Right. Now, how that translates to the subsea cable, we're starting to see a flow of traffic that uh, I the traffic is going to go everywhere in the world. You've mm-hmm. got most different nationalities, different dialects, different people. Mm-hmm. Um, we're seeing traffic now flowing to South America, and it's going to be enough content flowing to South America. Telsius is one of the... Uh, coming in from South America at the subsea case right. station in Virginia Beach. Right. We're actually in 2023 going to do a direct connection with Telsius, which I would have never envisioned. Right. You know, years ago we looked at, okay, you need to have a couple tier one providers to feed the bandwidth in the data center. That's simply not the case anymore. We can actually steer traffic to the shortest path, to the best carrier, to the correct location. Right. And that subsea cable now enabled that. Where Previously, we would have bought from a transit provider and would have gone to Ashburn, to New York, then to New Jersey, and then maybe across the pond to Europe right. or South America. We're ending up working out a relationship with one of those carriers that actually is on that has commissioned that cable. Right. And I just would have never seen that a couple of years ago. Right. And it shifted... Completely. So now that teacher that has some family back in South America now is communicating the shortest shortest path to video when she's doing a FaceTime or video chat. It's the lowest latency. It's rock solid and crystal clear as opposed to hauling it to New York and then hauling it to New Jersey and then going down to South America. Right. Uh, So it's it's been it's it's. It's been, I, I, I joke with the guys that build the subsea cables that mm. they're at the wrong stack, layer of the stack. Mm. They don't get to see the results where we're the, we're almost the last mile, but not the last mile. Right. And so we see these families' lives change dramatically. Right. And those guys, while what they're doing connecting continents is really cool, they don't get to see the results, which is amazing. Right. It, it is amazing. If, you know, when you're, <clears throat> if you're not in this industry, if you're not a technologist, you don't understand the, and we're not going to get into the engineering of it, but you don't understand the consequence of these things. But when you when you deploy something like this, and you see the quality of life for a community change, yes. not just on our end, but on the other end of that cable as well, whether it's for families or so many, um, especially in the States, but around the world where they'll have a, uh, you know, we're in the Richmond area today. Um, you may have a medical expert in a particular area. And now that I've got not just connectivity, but I have speed of light fiber connectivity. Mm-hmm. I can get online and consult when we see the emerging world of healthcare and um, uh, robot assisted uh, surgery or medical events or whatever, where I can reach into whether it's another part of the US or another part of the world. And so we're bringing more and more and more access to artists, to world class uh, healthcare professionals or whatever to extend. It's this this um, highly interconnected world. And most people just have no idea. It's just, uh, I don't know, it's a, just a building that's landing up here and it's a, a C cable, whatever that means, or a sub C cable, whatever that means. And yet it completely changes in a, uh, the life of a community. And we're seeing that also, not so much from sub C, but we see these co-ops now start linking together and bring ag tech into the world. It's pretty amazing. So from the electric co-op perspective, they're supplying electricity and uh, to their communities. 
electricity in Virginia is pretty straightforward, simple cost of production plus the fixed profit. Right. So these electric co-ops, what they were seeing was um, uh, a severe uh, exodus. Uh, If you went to college Mm -hmm. and you left a a rural community, uh, the statistics were you weren't coming back. Right. Uh, it's shifting, shifting it back. And so with the electric co-ops, if you're losing your members that are, you know, paying for your rates to, to cover the electricity costs, you lose your rate base, your operational costs go up, which means that every other homeowner in that community has a higher significant cost of electricity. Having fiber to the home just enabled them to increase their rate base, their customers, Mm -hmm. to keep them, to make them sticky because that gives them the ability to uh, do work from home, uh, you know, telemed, like everything you've talked about with that stuff that didn't exist or didn't have even a remote chance of connecting to the real world at a fast enough speed to have a video conference. And so it's, uh, it's the, with these electric co-ops doing this, this rural build, it, it's revitalizing communities that were, were withering on the vine. Right. And it's an amazing thing to see. Well, we only have a few minutes today. Um, otherwise, I would sit here and just keep peppering with questions. <laughs> um, if you get an opportunity, we'd love to have you sure. on, uh, on the show one of these days. And just let's dive into, I cannot wait for our audience to hear the history of the Pixel <laughs> Factory. And you in particular, it's a really cool story. And then also to tease out how... An organization like yours in what we would call Middle America, USA, not one of the big NFL cities, Correct. but how it is transforming really the world. I mean, this is this is a microcosm of how yeah. when you bring technology in, um, how we hear about all the negative consequences. And some of us have lived that out when, you mm-hmm. know, technology misapplied. But when it's applied correctly... It's, it's radical positive change, and I cannot wait to have that conversation with you. Yeah, it's been fantastic. So you know, it's a, I'm a big kid. We're having a fantastic time playing, and it's a great <laughs> sandbox to play in because it's just every day it, the, the leaps and bounds of stuff changing is just right. amazing. And right. I greatly appreciate the offer and love to spend time. Perfect. Well, Scott, thanks for coming in today, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Enjoyed it thoroughly. Our great pleasure. Right. Three, two, one. Nigel, what do you mean by rapidly developing global internet infrastructure? That's a lot of words. What does that mean? Well, look, the, 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 the change in internet requirement from maybe 15, 20 years ago when people's phone calls were what connected them, <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, the, the vast, vast volume of change that's occurred in the last decade and a half, two decades, um, has meant that the infrastructure is now not capable. It's not. It's not a slowly developing. You know, like you would with railway lines or airport runways. Mm-hmm. You know, this is now a an urgent requirement. The hockey stick curves are back in mm. terms of what people want. You know, I carry a five G device in my in my pocket, which I could, if the service is available, download a hundred meg to mm-hmm. my individual device and mm-hmm. all of the other hundreds of millions of people who are doing that. Mm-hmm. The requirement to get dynamic traffic globally, so very quickly across oceans, means the infrastructure needs a massive reboot. And the curves are all there in the demand. The 
curves are actually all there in the construction. Hopefully they'll, they'll catch up in time. So you're seeing a different structure to the internet than you did before when it all grew out of essentially academia. Mm -hmm. um, you're now talking about major, major uh, pipelines of data that are aggregating everything, everything from Meta, Google, Microsoft, etc., Amazon, all the way down to individual streams of individual news gatherers. You know, these mobile phones, these smartphones, make us almost broadcasters individually. Right. You know, major disaster happens, my phone flicks out. <coughs> Who wants to see it? You know, a guy at the BBC in London or a guy down in, you know, in Paris. And right. All of that, all of that change, so the change to the dynamism and the change to the volume means new infrastructure. Right. So we're we're changing the way the infrastructure works. We're adding much more capacity to a cable. Cables, you know, I've built them for the last 30 years. They were four to six fiber pairs. They were, you know, four or five terabits per fiber pair across the Atlantic. That would do you for a nice 25 years. Thank you very much. I get a nice smooth playback. No. Now I need to build 24 fiber pairs of 20 terabits each. I need to probably get the value of the capital cycle back out of it within five years, right. at seven at the latest, and then it might last for 15, it might last for 20, but by then I'll have built four or five more. So it's about recycling the capital, asset velocity, because there is change happening all the time, change to the structure of the internet, change to the direction of it. Resilience mm -hmm. requirements have meant that instead of cables starting roughly around New York and landing roughly around Cornwall and going to London, which mm -hmm. pretty much was the case for the last right. 20 odd years, um, they're now in Norway, Denmark, uh, Ireland, UK, France, Spain, spread right over the, the, the side of Europe mm -hmm. and spread all the way from Halifax in Canada, Nova Scotia, right the way down the eastern seaboard to Miami. But mm -hmm. in places they haven't been before, Virginia Beach, that's developed over the last few years. Mm -hmm. You've got the traditional landing stations in New Jersey, Long Island, Providence, you know, and, and, and Boston. So you're seeing this structural change. You're seeing a lot of the carriers who used to invest in all this stuff, they are regressing and going back to being national carriers. They're mm -hmm. spending all their money on access networks for 5G, there's uh, small cell networks, fiber to the home, gathering all of the data. And so people like us, we're independent, carrier neutral, mm -hmm. you know, private entities that just seek to look at one particular type of asset, which is the subsea cable. Mm -hmm. Our fund owns data centers as well in different parts of the world, but mm -hmm. we're, look, we're focused totally on that. I can tell you, if you, if you offer me $100 million to invest, I can tell you where to put it exactly today I know the talent that I have in the organization is focused on deploying it, and I know I can make a return on it. If you ask a full stack carrier who maybe has some, you know, submarine cable all the way up to IoT in their network, mm -hmm. that 100 million gets kind of sliced and diced. I'll put a little bit here, I'll put a bit over there, I'll put some over there. Right. So that we're seeing what I call a lamination in the industry. So subsea, there'll be terrestrial providers, there'll be data center providers, and then all the way up, people will focus very, very much on their specific niche, their specific piece of the industry. Mm. And we'll work collaboratively like we did many times before. So mm. um, that's what I think the, the gross change is, is needed over the course of the next decade and beyond. You know? I've t that inspires two questions in me. One, does that mean, I, I would imagine it means, whether they're a nation state like a Norway or... Sweden or whoever, or a state in the U.S. Mm -hmm. to compete for one of those landing stations because one of the things that we're talking about here at the IEIC event mm -hmm. is, it's if not overtly, it's certainly implied, the economic 
impact, the positive economic impact, yeah. if one of these lands in your area to to it's like a um it's like desalinization of the yep. ocean yeah, yeah. to a desert. It just spreads yeah, out yeah. from there. Yeah. And the second is, does that add a um how do you balance well, I guess second and third it seems like that would be complex, that partnership, mm-hmm. uh, to, to get those stacks to work together, because, especially if you're talking across nations, much less borders in a, yeah. you know, or borders yeah. in a states, much less nations. Wh- how do the geopolitics come into that? Um, and does that add any security vulnerability? So b- backing all the way up to economic development, are, are organizations, do you see states or countries now raising their hand and saying, hey, we, we want to play, we want to invest to get one of those land in, landing here? Um, you do and you don't. <clears throat> so in <laughs> some cases, those that haven't had them for a while, absolutely, right. want one. Those that have them right now, they're getting some of those benefits anyway. So if you look at Europe, which are all obviously countries, the differential in how those countries attract Right. The investment, you know, the, the the northern states, the Scandinavian states, will offer incentive almost to bring the cable there. Right. Um, the the southern ones, they have many cables, and they 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 might make it helpful, but they wouldn't necessarily offer in, incentives. But when you typically look at where a cable lands in any country, um, it doesn't really land usually where the where the use is, right? right? Where the people are, or where um, the big data centers are, you know, because mm. the big t- data centers have different reasons for hubbing. They might be looking for a latency ring around them, so they won't naturally be on a coast because there's nobody living in the sea off coast, right? right? So you take places like Atlanta, you know, enormous big high-growth areas. What's the route from Atlanta to Europe? It's probably Miami, Jacksonville, Myrtle Beach, you know. So would they flow traffic up to Enrico? Maybe they will, actually, right? But So you've got the big... The big hub locations need three to five routes to get to the other big hub locations on the other side. Denmark was chosen as a big hub for hyperscale most recently because it's got a good latency ring around it and it's right near to low-cost power because the hydro powers of Scandinavia, Hmm. the hydroelectric generation power, is renewable, which ticks a box, and is cheap, way cheaper than oil, gas, nuclear, anything else that's happening further down. And Denmark is a balanced balanced kind of uh, weather pattern for Mm -hmm. running a data center. It's not too hot. It's cool enough that you get some free air cooling. Mm. So it's it's kind of an optimum location. So a lot of traffic, the last few cables have been ringing up that area and sort of connecting into Denmark. But then there'll be a balance of something similar down in the Mediterranean, in Spain, in Bil- Bilbao is a big center now because, not necessarily because it, in and of itself it's a, cent- it's a central hub, but it's on the path mm. to the Middle East from the US. So if you want to get down towards Middle East and Asia, you can go and land in Bilbao, you can cross uh, maybe a few hundred kilometers and get to Barcelona. Barcelona has direct cables in the sea to Egypt. So you These are to- like modern caravan routes. That's Absolutely. what we're talking These about. These are the Silk Roads, the new Silk Roads, yeah. Right. Absolutely. And some of them follow the old Silk Roads, and they, they go to places where, look at the, the phenomenal rise of um, Muscat in Oman as a hub. Mm. Uh, I built a cable in there 2004. That was the first cable they'd had for a long time. They now have 14. Mm. <laughs> Muscat was a hub for trade right. in that for the last 
2,000 years. Right, let's right? say 2,000 so years. So you yeah. went to that part of the world, you traded your olive oil for right. your, you know, frankincense right. and all this kind of stuff. So it's just become, you know, it's a, na- it's a, it's a country where culturally they're naturally predisposed to make deals and have right. things work, and they've done that with telecommunications. Wow. In that country, in the space of 15 years, not, not a long, long time, 15 years. Right. So they're now a stopping off point for Pakistan and, and going up through, you know, Pakistan into China, for, into India, down underneath India to Singapore and Thailand, you know, and back into the Gulf to connect to all of the countries that ring the Gulf. So right. it's like a, a natural trading hub point, which has become an internet, like pure hub. Right. Interesting. I'm curious, you know, one of the, over history, the trade routes worked the best anyway, caravan routes worked best, whether it was Pax Romana of Rome or whatever, when they could um, protect the trade route, like it was the Roman road or whatever, you know, the empire protected them without diving too much in the geopolitical world Mm -hmm. today. But there is certainly, um, you know, the reason why people are investing so much, I think, into infrastructure like that is because data which is a cliche, is the new oil. It is, um, you know, the ideas of the whole world. And so they have to be protected. Is, as a provider, is that, is that something you partner with somebody, whether it's the nation state or whoever, to make sure they have the physical and logical security? Or is that part of your world? How do you make sure that that route to the degree that you can stays open and free and protected? It's it's a good question because you get the protection of the sea. Mm-hmm. And what I mean by that is there's nothing, you know, better to stop somebody interfering with your asset when it's 2,500 metres right. below the sea. Ain't nobody holding their breath to get down there. Right. There's no submarine can get down right. there. You know, you can, it's protected by its kind of, simple obscurity of where it is in right. the deep deep ocean where there is there's no sea monsters there's nothing there right it's dark that it's we know silty, of. right <laughs> that, well, that we know of but you know we've dragged cables through a lot of right. these places and right. we're fairly sure there's not much there so right. our natural protection is we're in an environment which is absolutely not easy to deal with i mean the average right. depth of the world's oceans is about <clears throat> three thousand meters right okay? uh, 78% of the world's oceans are completely unexplored. Nobody knows what on earth is down there and right. can't even think about how to make the machinery right. to go down there and investigate. When we come onto the shores uh, and we come onto the continental shells, so we route our cables into deep water as quickly as possible, but you get a couple of hundred kilometers where that cable is um, in shallower water, water which is maybe up to 500 meters deep. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the kind of place where. Uh, trawling fishermen go through, dragging their big nets or mm-hmm. looking for scallops in the seabed. And, and it's where, you know, a whole host of things, people anchor their ships and the anchors mm-hmm. bury themselves. So what we do is we bury the cable underneath the seabed, mm. usually up to about two meters deep, mm. six six foot deep. And that's, that's enough to cope with most of the hazards. Mm. We're also, we know exactly where we put the cable. Mm-hmm. And these days there is no kind of, secret cloaking device every mm-hmm. vessel over you know a certain size has right. to report its position automatically so right. we monitor that we understand when vessels are moving slowly across our cable mm-hmm. that's a clear sign that it's some kind of trawling fisherman who's mm-hmm. dragging something we the it, a system automatically reports to us who that fisherman is we get on the phone 
mm-hmm. on his radio. Mm-hmm. What are you doing? You're near mm-hmm. the cable. Mm-hmm. We're warning you to stay away. You know, so there's lots and lots of mechanisms to to understand and protect anybody from an external aggression point of view. But of course, these are critical national infrastructure elements. So right. for any nation state, they're wanting to protect them anyway. And they're, you know, in different parts of the world, they offer different types of help to to essentially look at and secure it. Landing stations by themselves are fairly secure facilities. You know, we, we make them secure and obscure. So you, you would drive past our landing station and wouldn't know it was a landing station. We don't put a big sign up saying, you know, right. rah, rah, here's the landing station. The world's traffic is right here, but just keep moving. Yeah, exactly, yeah, keep moving, <laughs> keep walking, you know, don't, don't look. So, you know, all of that stuff uh, deep, you know, deep inside how we structurally build everything. Right. Um, helps with its security. but uh. Well, I would love to have you on for a full-length podcast one of these days because we, yeah, we, we could go uh, deep. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a question, but before that, I have a comment. We had Jeff Smith on who is part of Undersea Robotics for Saab. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And he was telling, we were talking, remarking about the ocean, and he said when they were, they were assisting the Australian government searching for a down airliner, I yep. believe it was the missing Malaysian flight. Yeah. And they went to a part of the ocean where their robots operate at 3,000 meters, 3,200 meters or whatever. Mm -hmm. So they deployed them. And when they got there, the ocean didn't stop at 3,200 meters or whatever it was. It was 1,000 meters deeper Deeper. or something like that. Maybe it was 1,000 feet deeper. I forget what it was. But it was a significant distance. Probably 1,000 meters. And I said, how did we miss it? And he said, you know, where we have examined the ocean, our tools are about the width of a straw. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so in some areas, they yeah. are wildly accurate. But in a majority, we know the moon a hundred times better yeah. than we know the majority of our ocean. Yeah. And we it is see a, it, we can sense it. It, it. People don't go to those places in the ocean to be right. able to even measure it. Right. It is, uh, it is as harsh an environment as anything. Um, that's why so many of our citizen astronaut programs train underwater yeah. because it is at least as harsh, if not yeah. harsher yeah. than inner space, uh, certainly a colony on a celestial body. Um, as you imagine this hockey stick curve of mm-hmm. growth and how we're accommodating that, what are some of the things, um, if you it, just as succinctly as you can, that look, for me in the subsea space... And my and my my friends sort of that are um, connected to this. This is how we need to think about how we're going to uh, pr- process this. And the reason why I ask that I'm in the data center business, mm-hmm. and it took us about 18 years, 17 years um, to get to a certain size. Yep. And in a year and a half since then, we've almost tripled. Yeah. <laughs> and so the strain on building data centers, on being wildly efficient with power and energy to Mm. find talent, which we've talked about many times today. Every industry is talking about that. Um, And not just any talent, capable talent. Yeah, exactly. Um, The financing to finance this. And oh, by the way, there's some geopolitical instability going on in the world. As you sit down and you think through that and you talk through your industry, is there anything you can share with us on Here's at least in the short term how we're approaching this explosion and growth with these obstacles. That's the, an easy question. It's an, it's a, <laughs> well, there is a there is an easy answer which okay. you know is not just a glib answer, and that is partnering. Mm. Like you, ca- nobody 
can do it all. But back 20, 30 years ago, you know, I worked for a company called Flag Telecom. We mm. built cables all around the world. We did all of that on our own. Mm. We owned all the asset. We operated the asset. So now it's much more about partnering, even in subsea construction and even in the deployment of cables, because there are scientific things that we can add to cables, which help lots of other things. Our fund is a, is, you know, grow up, grew out of one of the UN um, sustainability goals, you know, mm. around providing, um, you know, efficient and, and kind of renewable infrastructure. Mm. If we look at what we could do uh, technologically on our cables to provide data back to shipping companies around what's happening on the seabed at any one time, pressure uh -huh. variations and temperature variations, those help inform the weather models mm. to help people understand whether this route is going to be more susceptible to storms or that route, mm -hmm. therefore making efficient use of the fuel in a ship. There's like a whole kind of you know virtuous circle of information flow that can mm. occur. Um, similarly, the ships can carry packages of uh, instrumentation that can help us understand the sea that they're going over. And maybe we won't have this situation where somebody suddenly finds a big, deep part of the ocean they didn't realize anymore. So there's a, there's a scientific hand-holding with academia, with you know, other users of the sea, and with submarine cable deployers that can and help produce more information for all of us and an overall global benefit. But partnering partnering with the Meta, Google, Microsoft, Amazon, you know, they, they've got the need for enormous capacities. We don't have quite that need. We've got mm -hmm. a slightly smaller need. Mm -hmm. Even aggregating all the traffic in North America and sending it to Europe mm -hmm. that isn't Meta, Google, Amazon, and, and uh, Microsoft mm -hmm. um, it is still quite a large requirement, mm -hmm. but it's nothing like the scale of what they're building. So, mm -hmm. you know, partnering, deploying capital, having, you know, parts of four cable systems instead of a whole cable system right. is a much better um, use of capital and deployment of capital to try and meet this, this J curve because you're getting the resilience in there. One cable is no use because if that cable is cut by whatever reason, natural disaster, you know, geophysical or a fisherman fishing in the wrong place, mm -hmm. it's down for six to eight weeks. You know, it's a couple of million dollars to go and repair it, which we can do right. relatively easily, even in the deep water. <clears throat> um, but uh, you need to build into a, a model where you've got scale in, in, in spread rather than just a single, you know, single investment in this. And so partnership is the one thing which gets as much of that done as possible and even partnership in talent mm. you know there's some big consultancies that specialize in very specific things about cable deployment mm -hmm. nobody needs to hire each uh, a data scientist to manage that right. we can all use the same consultants right so. one of the things i love as we wrap out wrap up is uh we sort of started off this conversation about relationships mm. and so however many thousands of years we've been trading on this spaceship yep. For all our technology, at the end of the day, it comes back to human beings helping human beings flourish Absolutely. and partnering and, yeah. and uh, trying to figure out. Uh, Nigel, thanks for coming on the program today. No I really look forward to uh, harder questions when we, uh, not harder, funner, yeah. more fun, yeah, and just uh, having a great time when we get you on for a longer conversation. Yeah, no, I'd be very happy. Always happy to talk about this. All right. Thank you very much, Nigel. We'll thanks see you so. next time. Cheers. Cheers. Three, two, one. Anthony, thanks for coming on the QTS experience with me. Thank you, David. Great to be here. So many years ago, I was with QTS, um, and we bought this crazy building um, 
here in Richmond. And I remember being one of the first folks uh, from the data center industry to tour that. And the world really did think we were crazy. It didn't matter the price because we got it for a really good, um, really good price. Uh, the world did not think of this part of the world. Northern Virginia made a lot of sense, but this part of the world, they kind of scratch in their head. Uh, is that really going to be the hub of data center um, activity? And by uh, genius foresight or luck of the draw, I don't know what it is. And Rico County for sure is uh, um, growing. And part of that is uh, because of the data center industry. So can you tell us what the impact of having some of these data centers in your county has been for you guys? Yeah, the, well, the impact has been uh, tremendous. And you, you guys may have been crazy, but you were crazy brilliant uh, with what you did back in 2011 with the yeah. old semiconductor plan and, and the investments that QTS has made in the last decade have just uh, really been phenomenal. And since we have the NAP or the network access point, mm -hmm. which has the direct connectivity to the undersea cables to mm -hmm. Europe, Africa, and and, uh, and South America, since you all have made your investment, uh, Meta has come in, Facebook has come in with a $2 billion dollar uh, data center. There's other data centers in the park that are also uh, expanding. And then the entire ecosystem mm -hmm. is expanding in Henrico. PDI Eaton, who's a supplier to the data center industry, and Nord Mardix, who's a data center supplier to the industry, they've both expanded in our, in our community. And then um, the construction job impact mm -hmm. has been uh, just phenomenal with the work that you all are doing, the work that Meta is doing. I mean, Meta started construction in 2017 on their data center campus. They're going to be done next year. That's six years of anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 people on site mm. uh, building uh, those data centers. So a substantial uh, economic impact. Mm. For us, from a tax standpoint, back five years ago, our board of supervisors reduced the data center tax rate 90%. And as a result, uh, data center taxes have gone up 400% because the industry has really doubled down uh, on Henrico. And we think that's really just the beginning uh, mm -hmm. with the expansion that, that you all have mm -hmm. underway and with uh, a number of conversations that we're having with folks in White Oak Park, White Oak Tech Park, as well as uh, throughout eastern Henrico. Uh, we think we're just beginning to see the tip of the iceberg of uh, the impact of data centers, the impact of digital infrastructure in Henrico. It, this may not be completely analogous, but it reminds me of when I got into NASCAR early days for me in the 90s, they had this phrase of you had to slow down to go faster. And what they meant was you, you started slowing down before you got to the turn so that you could exit with much greater velocity as opposed to diving deep into the turn, hitting on the, you know, hitting the brakes and kind of awkwardly getting your way through. And so when you talk about, it seems counterintuitive. If I reduce the tax rate, am I not then going to reduce the revenue? Mm -hmm. And yet, and we didn't plan out this question and answer segment, but we've seen this happen around the country where if you, if you relieve, relieve some of this, it incents growth that looks like this. And, um, you know, the world wants to, when we say grow data centers, what we really mean is the world's consuming data. We are not satisfying, you know, the, the rate at which we want to, um, consume data. It lives in data centers. Right. And um, what a what a great opportunity and result. Well, we're really fortunate that the county, uh, county leadership uh, was willing to, and at the time, was to set aside a million dollars in county revenue 
knowing that there would be a long-term gain with the additional investment that would come. So your NASCAR analogy is, is spot on. We did have to slow down to make the turn, but it's, but it's picking up and it's picking up uh, very, very quickly. And that million dollars we lost in the first year is now uh, just in some financial statement because it's, it's millions right. of dollars. It's more like a than seed we investment, right? Exactly. That's a really good, good way to look at it. And I, and I think, you know, the combination of, I mean, what works so well here is that we're equidistant between the beach where the subsea cables, cables land and, and Ashburn. Mm-hmm. Um, and then with um, the building that you all bought and the area in and around White Oak has supersized infrastructure because mm-hmm. the first occupant of White Oak Tech Park in the 1990s was a semiconductor plant. Right. And so data centers need that really um, strong infrastructure, water, power, fiber, and uh, it's all there. Mm-hmm. And so that has really positioned us well. The tax rate reduction, uh, we think, has been uh, kind of a tipping point for additional investment. One of the things that I've learned over time is it's not, it always starts with economic incentive. That is part of it every time. I I don't know that I know of a story where that wasn't at least some part of the conversation, usually the start of it. But alone, that's usually not enough. It is what's the willingness of the business community and the and just the community not just the business leadership but the community to actually partner her we're here at the IEIC and earlier today we heard um, Kelly McCall um, from Meta talk about community involvement and so it's really cool to see the data center community saying look yes we believe we're you know we're here I mean the you know one of the things for our data centers is we need uh, um, needs to be economically viable. It's got to have the right infrastructure. It's got to have the right connectivity. But we also need need to be part of the community. And if we're not, it just doesn't work long-term, both the business community and the non-business community. Uh, And it feels like you guys really have something going on here that satisfies that. We do. And And I think that what we found from our data center partners is that we share a lot of the same values in terms of having a great community to live and work and raise a family, to have a strong education system. Uh, we think that's why QTS has expanded here and why Meta ultimately made the decision uh, to come here is they were really um, excited about the ethos of Henrico and wanting to be a part of that. They could have put that $2 billion data center anywhere and mm-hmm. they, uh, you know, and they chose us and, and we think it was um, certainly the tax rate was a part of it. Tax rate reduction was a part of it, but we think that, you know, who we are as a community and who they are uh, as a company that we were really aligned and they were excited about that. And, and I will say, you mentioned Kelly, you know, uh, Meta uh, Facebook has made a substantial investment in the community since they came here. One of the most important things they did is that when the pandemic hit hard, they immediately helped with uh, MiFi devices for uh, children either who lived in rural areas or who lived uh, who had parents who couldn't afford high-speed internet mm. so that online learning could continue when our schools were closed for mm-hmm. about 18 months. And that made a huge difference uh, for our community and allowed kids at all school levels to continue to learn. One of the things we've also seen them do, and this is not an infomercial for Meta, but I love this story. I have seen them. Uh, I don't know if they've done it here in Enrico. i got to imagine they have. They also lend their talent out. Like I've seen them in other communities. Their their folks just volunteer to go in and help train people on the devices or just bring their levels of expertise, whether it's in infrastructure, IT, whatever. How do we get fully involved in our local groups and bring our intellectual talent, not just our pocketbook? Yeah, they they absolutely have done that. 
have done that here. One of the uh, things that we're especially proud of is we have an Achievable Dream Academy in one of our local elementary schools, which is a, a particularly intensive uh, program for kids that, that may have a little bit of difficulty of, uh, in their homes. And um, uh, META employees, our, our sheriff's deputies, police officers, firefighters work with the kids every day. Mm. And uh, we really believe they're making a difference in the, in the lives of these kids. Well, I'd love to have you on for a longer term podcast. We are in the middle of a summit. We need to go in just a minute. But I'm, as you look at, I'm going to ask you the impossible question. Once upon a time, I've been in IT for a very long time. We used to sit there around and talk <laughs> about our three to five year plan. If you look at your county, you're looking at the last, just say five years, not even the last 10 years, just the last five years, how much it has changed either as a result of um, remote work because of the pandemic um, these big infrastructure folks coming into town, a, uh, a sea cable landing site not far away that has connected here. As, as, you, as you and your other um, uh, county leadership imagine what's next, what is it that you're imagining or you're planning for? Um, we're asking some big questions. Okay. Um, among these is how can we leverage the, div- the digital infrastructure that we have? Mm-hmm. We have a substantial, we have more retail than any other locality in our region. We also have more class A office space than any other locality in the region. And so how those are impacted by the changing nature of retail, by the changing nature of office space. Every every corporation in the world is reevaluating mm, yeah. office space uh, right now and what that means for us for repositioning those buildings so that they can continue to be economically viable. Those are really big questions that we're, uh, that we're wrestling with and We'd like to think that flexibility is the key so that we can let the private sector do what it does so well, which is to be uh, innovative and to figure out ways to continue to uh, grow the economy with uh, with government uh, helping to uh, facilitate that. So that's really uh, an area of, of uh, focus for us. We do have some pretty substantial uh, industrial sites in the eastern part of the county that we're looking for continued high-quality development. A lot of that will be further data centers that mm-hmm. we're uh, we're really excited about there. Um, and then the big thing, too, that we focus on, our mission as an entity is growing Henrico's economy for all. And the, the last two words are the most important when we say for all, because our community, while we have some very affluent areas in the county, we have some very uh, strong, heavy industry areas of the county. Our median family income is about $70,000 a year. Mm. And one thing we don't want to forget is that half of our families live on less than $70,000 a year. Mm. And so we've got to make sure that we've got good quality opportunity at uh, all levels of the of the spectrum and, and for everyone in our community. It's a big challenge. It is a big challenge. And if you figure out half of that, please let us know Absolutely. because we will. Uh, you'll be the bell of the ball. I think everybody, all of these communities are trying to figure that out, but in particular communities about the size of Enrico and the greater Richmond area. Um, from my perspective, what is so cool is how communities like yours have become so competitive with larger communities saying we can help. I'm thinking of Tulsa, Oklahoma is one that comes to mind. How can I make a world that um, that's great for my citizens is highly connected. You can have a high quality of life, be digitally connected to other work areas, be, be, uh, and bring infrastructure and opportunity to our citizens where they don't have to compromise and commute or in cost of living or whatever. They can have a high quality of life. 
and, and the counties and the municipalities are really thinking about that from a, a strategic competitive way so that they can, they can enhance their entire community. And I'm hoping it leads to a continued revitalization of downtown areas and community class A office space. How can we rethink about some of these things to give the best opportunity to our citizens? I think um, you're right that we're all, uh, we're all uh, wrestling with that. Place is more important than ever. Mm-hmm. We have a, a team member uh, now, uh, a new position that we created that focuses full-time on placemaking uh, because of the importance of that. We recognize that knowledge workers can work anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that means that if you can come to a community with good schools, with a great road network, with good parks, um, you know, urban rapids right in the middle of, of downtown, and really enjoy amenities two hours from the mountains, two hours uh, from the beach, that um, it would just be a great place to, to be and to, have, and to uh, raise your family. And that's our marketing efforts now have completely pivoted. We used to market to companies and to CEOs, and we're still doing that. Mm-hmm. But more and more, we're focusing on quality of life that we're marketing directly to workers because right. we're, we're hearing from every employer is the challenge of finding good finding and keeping good quality labor. Right. And so our marketing efforts are laser focused on how we can bring people uh, to the region. And this is a place where they where they want to work, uh, where they want to live, where they want to raise their families. Well, it's certainly beautiful. Um, I've enjoyed coming here for the last decade or so. And it's uh, it's gorgeous. I can't believe how much it's changed, um, but it is still, it's like Atlanta with one one hundredth of the traffic. So <laughs> I love it. Yeah, we don't, uh, we don't want Atlanta traffic. <laughs> Neither do I. Anthony, thanks for coming on the show today. I hope you enjoy the rest of your summit. Thank you so much. Appreciate the opportunity. My great pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. Three, two, one, Hunter, thanks for coming on the QTS Experience. Thank you. So we're going to dive right into it. You've got a panel to be at in just a moment. Yes. One of the things that is an uncommon conversation is, is it feels like parts of the world are able to have this fully meshed, highly interconnected internet network experience, and the states does not have across the entirety of it that same experience. You've been in this business for, I'm not going to say forever because I don't want to date either you <laughs> or I, but for a long time. Yeah. Why is that? The perception, and is it true? It's yeah, it's more than a perception. It's true. It's a reality, and it's based on geography. So you mentioned South Korea before we right, just came yeah. there. Um, South Korea is uh, small. It's a country, but it's small. Uh, the OECD ranks countries, mm. and the problem in terms of broadband speed and penetration, and the problem is the word country. Mm. Belgium is a country. Luxembourg is a country, and the United States is a country. Right. Okay. Belgium's the size of this table. Okay. So, uh, and I've been to South Korea. I was there many years ago. Right. They long time ago figured out that fiber is a huge economic development driver. So they built fiber out to almost every place that they possibly could. Right. There's a lot of mountainous regions and whatever, but they have incredible cell coverage because they have fiber to every tower because right. they don't have that much land to cover. Mm. So the problem inside the United States is that people don't see that we're in this giant digital desert because of the fact that we're connected via roads Mm. and land, um, but you don't have a defined area. Like take Hong Kong, for example, you know, Raymond was here before talking about Mega Eye and 11 submarine cables land on the island of Hong Kong. Okay. We don't have 11 submarine cables landing on an island anywhere around here. So it's because of geographic uh, disparity. Mm. Um, 
And then the cost per mile comes into effect. Mm. You know, uh, in Hong Kong, they talk about the cost per home passed is $75. Um, and that might be a little bit dated, but that's because they think of everything in terms of vertical real estate where there's like, you know, hundred story condominiums. Whereas when you think about a home and the definition of the word home, you think of like Connecticut, a house with lots of land and a wood fence and trees. And right. Okay. So that's the reason why, um, it's all about geography and population density and the misnomer of the word country in the United States being ranked, whatever it is, 25th on the list in terms of broadband speed and penetration is wrong. So I created my own um, charts years ago is uh, countries by square kilometers and population density of that same top 25. The Mm. United States is number one. Mm. Do you think one of the rare things that a lot of us celebrate that was a bipartisan effort at least it seemed to be bipartisan, is the infrastructure, passing of the infrastructure bill. Do you think the, um, assuming we get to deploy that the way we imagine, do you think that we're going to have a much greater fiber penetration than we are now? Is that going to, do you think it's going to be as successful as we hope? Well, or are we not yeah. sure? Well, so... Is that I too loaded of a question? No, it's, well, okay, everything, <laughs> everything can go wrong. Sure. Okay, but um, I helped draft the uh, Internet Exchange Bill uh, which was oh, I didn't know that. legislation passed. Okay. Yeah, it was me and Connected Nation working with Senator Blackburn oh, and Congressman Long. And it's the first time ever in the Middle Mile Grant, um, the first time that Internet Exchange, Internet Exchange Point have ever been defined terms that are grant eligible, mm. which make them real. Because right. if the NTIA says it's real, then it's, it's real. real. That's yeah. right. It hasn't been not real for the past, whatever, 15, right. 20 years. It's just that no one in that world knew. Right. And what they really didn't know was that neutral interconnection real estate is what solves the broadband problem. Right. Not fiber. Right. Fiber is a word, like broadband's a word. Um, you could put fiber in the ground, but if it's not connected to anything, what good is it? Right. So the lack of a neutral meet point and an internet exchange, an actual layer two ethernet switch right. for networks to peer on is what's missing. And the analogy I've always given historically is uh, the PSTN, uh, the brick buildings and the copper wires, the mm-hmm. central office, right? Mm-hmm. Which came first? I don't know the answer to that. The buildings. The buildings, well, sure. They had to know where yeah. to build the sure. wires back to. Sure. So if you go back a hundred and something years in terms of the architecture, you know, Theodore Vale and the design of the public switch telephone network. Right. It wasn't just copper wires. There are there's a building element to the PSTN. Right. And for all these years, billions of dollars have been fed into fiber, 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 without any mention of a building. And this is the first time that buildings are in it. So if we can get more IXPs, the P is point, point is a right. euphemism for the building. Right. And then an IX, which is a switch, and that attracts content providers who can do distribution via VLANs to multiple eyeball networks. Right. Then you could build an, an ecosystem. And then you could start to make the country smaller. Because the more peering points there are, the easier it is for metro fiber providers to build from it to the home, from it to the building. If there isn't a P, a point, right. a neutral point, right. the backhaul is too far. Right. And then you got extortion because you right. got like one or two providers and they charge whatever they want. We, well, we've got to get you out of here in 90 seconds or less, maybe less. But I, that's a very provocative statement. I love it. We need to have you on our longer form podcast one of these days. I, I had, as many times as I've had this conversation, I've never had it explained like that. I think you're 100% right. Let me just ask you this one last question. Hmm. It feels like then there's a lot of opportunity. Um, 
but I don't know. You know, I know a lot of people, I'm in the data center business, and somebody asked me, is there opportunity for entrepreneurs, not traditional data center people, to get in the business? I said, it depends. If you're trying to make a 10,000 square foot data center, there's a lot of opportunity. If you're trying to make a mega data center, it's a million, two million, three million square feet, hundreds of megawatts, there might be less of an opportunity. When you think about whether it's the IXP that you're describing or any of these other infrastructure interconnected effort that we're talking about here at the summit today, is there, um, is there a lot of interest from people who aren't traditionally part of this discussion to come in and get involved? Or is it still sort of magic and they don't really understand it? It's not really attracting the investment or the talent. So we already have had entrants into this space that aren't traditional. So telecom was dominated by AT&T and Verizon and Telefonica and Deutsche Telekom, whatever. Right. And then in came Google right. and Facebook right. and Microsoft. Right. You want to see entrepreneurial demand? Right. They dominate the space. Right. They came from nowhere, and right. now they're the ones setting the trends, not just on data centers, on submarine cables. Right. They own the oceans now. Right. No submarine cables getting built, almost none, that isn't underwritten by an OTT. Right. And then terrestrial fiber builds, most of them are using some carrier CPCN, but they're all doing sub, you know, microduct, and they're right. taking 288s and subduct. They have dark all over the place, but they're not carriers. Right. So they've completely transformed the network infrastructure industry into what it is today. I mean, the earlier panel today, everyone was like, well, where do you decide to build your neutral cable landing stations or data centers? Right. And they say, we asked the hyperscalers. Right. The term hyperscaler didn't even exist 10 years ago. I know. It's not and funny. now here it is. So right. um, if your content, uh, you know, cloud is sort of dominated by the big guys that right. have that, you know, the buying power of balance sheets and whatnot. Right. But... Um, metaverse blockchain is a really great space. There's a lot of big data applications coming out of there. And, um, I'm not saying that any one of them want to get into the cloud business themselves, right. uh, because it's easier for them to use a cloud, but hybrid makes a lot of sense. Right. Uh, multi-cloud makes a lot of sense. Right. Um, and I think that there are new sort of innovative things that will happen that necessarily need to happen with those that are creating that much data. They're going to have leverage, right. um, and they could potentially come together or work with a different group to create a new brand that we've never heard of before because right. they're just such that size buyer right. that they could dictate those kind of terms. Um, it wouldn't be overnight, but you know, it could be, it could be gradual. Um, and then, you know, the real estate aspect of it, you know, good land, fiber, power, water. It's like right. the Googles, they learned that game, right? They recruited all the top telecom people. Now right. they have better divisions of, uh, you know, fiber builders and whatever data center builders and certainly submarine cable builders yeah. than, uh, than the carriers. One of the things that's really cool about them. We work a lot with them as well. They don't have a problem raising their hand saying we're stuck. Help us think a little bit differently, whether they're calling in somebody that we know or somebody from Accenture or Deloitte or whatever. They're yeah. like, look, we're smart, we're capable, but we're stuck. We don't want help. Yeah. And um, that's one of the things that I really dig about some of these organizations is uh, they're humble enough. I wouldn't call them humble, but they're yeah. humble enough to say, hey, can you help us yeah. think about this differently? Either confirm or help redirect us. Yeah. And uh, it's a pretty cool thing to see. It is. And, you know, there's some, you know, some that haven't really gotten into sub C as much like Apple and Amazon that could get more into it. But obviously they have big data centers, but Microsoft and Google and Facebook really led the way right. um, in many ways. Well, Google did and the others came in right. and took more dominant positions. And I could see others like them, who knows, maybe Oracle or someone like that, right. that comes into the space. Um, but that's, that's clearly the trend. Right. I mean, the, the need to control 
right. and the capital that they had operating at layer seven saying, I have to own layer zero right. and one. Right. I mean, it's brilliant. I mean, I've been a zero one guy for 25 years and I'm like, well, what's Google doing here? And I said that at 60 Hudson Street back in whatever, 2003. Right. I'm like, what are they doing here? They're like right. a website. They're right. like a search engine. <laughs> and then next thing you know, whoosh, it's like, wow, that's what they're doing here. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's rare. Uh, it was very smart, very visionary. Um, you know, uh, is there a chance that others can do the same thing? Yes, absolutely. It comes down to control and the yeah. need and, you know, just how big the balance sheet is. That's a great answer. But one of the reasons why you made me chuckle was back in 2002, if you'd said Google, we would have said to ourselves, well, they're no Ask Jeeves. Yeah, yeah, here right. they are. They own the world. Right. So anyway, look, I know you need to go. Yep. I appreciate Thank you for you. this great uh, yep. moment. Thanks for having Enjoy me. Enjoy your panel. Thank you very appreciate much. It. Bye.